Welcome to Support Heroes by Kaizo, the number one source of customer support insights in the world of audio. I'm your host, Sebastian. Each week on the show, we'll be having insightful conversations with customer support professionals from some of the most well-known and exciting companies around the world. If you're looking to forward your career in customer support, this is the place to learn from those who have succeeded in doing exactly that. Our superstar guests are at the ready to provide you the lessons they learned from many years on the front line of customer support. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy yet another episode of Support Heroes by Kaizo. Perrin, thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, very well, Sebastian. Thank you very much for inviting me for the interview. Thank you. Lovely to have you. You're located in Buenos Aires, correct? Uh, no, I'm actually in Rosario in Argentina. So you've got the right country. Uh, the oh, majority, apologies. No, not a problem at all. So the, the majority of, uh, of the company is in Buenos Aires, at least uh, the Argentine contingent. I'm kind of the outlier in that I'm out in the space. <laughs> <laughs> is that a commonality in your life, Perrin? Are you usually the outlier? <laughs> it's something I've experienced, yes. <laughs> as have I, as have I. Not necessarily a bad thing. So what is, uh, what is the weather like with you? Is, is it always good weather in Argentina? Do you have four seasons? Is it wet and dry? Give me the, the lowdown. So it's, it's obviously southern, uh, southern Hemisphere, so it's inverted compared to, uh, well, compared to the UK. Right now, we're coming out of summer and heading towards slightly cooler weather. Uh, but mm-hmm. it doesn't really get cold here. I mean, last winter, I mean, winter was a joke anyway, but last winter, uh, there, there was people, there was Argentines with their, their scarf on, their big winter coats, and I was going out in shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, just a difference of context. I feel people from New Zealand can manage to wear three-quarter length shorts in just about any weather. I've seen yeah. this firsthand. I've known more than one New Zealander um, that just never seemed to ever take the shorts off, or at least he went to the three-quarter lengths when he got really cold, but he still had no socks on and things like this. I, I don't know how they do it. The same with the Siberians in Russia. They just have a, a whole other scale of cold. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I spent the last eight years living in Switzerland, so again, it's a different experience of cold compared to Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely upgraded, Perrin. Let's just put it that, Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yes. So... um. The way we usually like to start the show is uh, I have the guests kind of introduce themselves, contextualize their career, tell us a little bit about where they come from, um, and also talk to us about where they kind of entered into customer support and where they are now. So Perrin, could you give us a little background and just introduce yourself a bit? Yeah, with pleasure. So my name is Perrin Facey. I'm 40 years old. I'm from the UK, but I haven't really, I, I haven't really lived there very often or for very long. I spent most of my life moving around from one country to the next. My father mm. worked for the United Nations, which meant that we were always moving from one country to the next. I had the, uh, the fortune of being able to spend some of my life in Spain, some in Germany, some in Austria, the last eight years in, uh, in Switzerland. So you kind of pick up a few languages as you go along. And mm-hmm. language is, is something that I feel very passionate about. Beyond that, I studied mathematics at university. I came out of university thinking, great, uh, let's go into finance. Um, <laughs> let's make some money. Yeah, exactly. Let's make some money. Um, didn't really work out how I, was, how I was expecting, though. Um, I got a short-term, mm. what I thought was going to be a short-term job in customer support. I thought, whilst I'm looking for my real job, I'll do this as a kind of interim thing. And mm. I think as happened with many people. Uh, we suddenly find, or I suddenly found that I actually had a passion for this, that it was really motivating me, and decided to make a career of it. Mm. What was it about the role specifically that motivated you? What I enjoyed most about it was the problem-solving aspect of it. And I think you mm-hmm. can link that back to uh, being passionate about mathematics. There's always a problem that you have to solve. There's always a solution. And when it comes to customer mm-hmm. care, you have a customer. A customer doesn't call you because they're happy or they don't call you because everything's working fine. They need your help with something. 
and all of a sudden yeah. you're in a position where you can provide that solution and that was something that, that mm -hmm. really grabbed me i suppose also something else about the role being uh in my role as a podcaster is within support you're kind of under the gun right and there's a there's an adrenaline associated with that we're recording now um and we're under the gun in that same sense and i think that there is a thrill to just knowing that you have to pull it you have to pull it together you have to make it happen right here right now and i think that that is definitely another aspect of it right absolutely yes i mean every single interaction with a customer is unique everyone comes in with their own mm. background their own experience their own problem and they need your help there and then it doesn't matter what you're going through personally uh, it doesn't matter if you've mm -hmm. had a good day, if you've slept well, if you've had a good meal. None of that matters for the customer. You're under the gun mm -hmm. right there to provide a great solution. And you're you're evaluated on every single interaction that you have with the customer. So every single one is important. It's not like you can say, yes. I did great on 99 tickets, but on one, I really messed up. Yeah, I'm sorry. Don't mess up. Mm. Yeah, that consistency is a big facet of it. So Perrin, could you talk to me a little bit about your different experiences within the support industry and perhaps what you learned about the place of support within business from those experiences. Just kind of give me an overview. So I've been fortunate that, uh, that I've been, been able to work in support in several different industries. So I've worked in, uh, in support in healthcare, in, uh, in telecoms, in the energy market, mm -hmm. and more recently in software development. So I've been able to see how support can be positioned in these different markets. And what I've been learning from this is support is, is a function that, that really does help the business to, th to thrive. It's, it's mm. I mean, it, obviously it's in the name, support. You're, you're there supporting the rest of the business, but mm. customers stay with the company because of the support. You might have this fantastic sales team that go out and win you all these new contracts, but it's a support team that really does keep those people interested and uh, loyal to your company. Yes. And what, I, what I've also been learning is that Within support, you need to be incredibly agile. You need to be, be able to react fast. You need to be able to mm. adapt to, to changing situations. And one of the things that I found as a challenge at a, at a previous company was if the environment is overly political or if there are too many steps to get authorization for, for any changes, you become very stagnant mm. because as soon as you need three, four, five people to sign off on any, any ideas you have, it becomes too slow to, to get things done. And by the time you get things changed, the situation has changed again. And so you need to adapt once again. Mm -hmm. And so you're always kind of chasing your tail. So, so the point mm -hmm. is you need to be agile. You need to have quick decision paths. Um, and that, that's really a great way of positioning support. In that sense, would you also say that the success of support is the resulting factor of the coherence and internal harmony within a company from a social perspective? Because if I were to read what you said correctly, because the nature of support is ever-changing, if the company isn't agile from a social perspective, there's no way that support could be successful, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. There's a strong argument to say that that is the case. What, what I've been finding at Mural is uh, Mural is, is a software development company. They, they follow agile principles, and there are very quick decisions being made. I mean, one of our company values is experiment like an owner. So you're, you're oh, nice. it's almost like, Ask for forgiveness, not permission. So yeah. go, go out and go out and try things. Um, the worst that will happen mm. is you learn from it. So mm. uh, so we're encouraged to to just well we're in, empowered to make decisions, try things out, and then iterate and adapt on that. Mm. And how has that changed in relation to your prior experiences? 
how has that changed the way that you and your department operate and how you approach your department from a business perspective? The way it approaches me from a business perspective is that I feel much more empowered as a leader to pass on that empowerment to, to my team. So, for mm -hmm. example, when uh, a recent uh, task that we were working on was developing a career ladder for the support mm -hmm. reps, and it was a very simple decision to actually give that task to a rep, empowering an, a support rep to take that task and prepare something. And then obviously we iterate on that, work on it with the leadership team. But it makes mm. the whole task of delegation so much easier because when, when you're at a, at a company that's, that has values such as experiment like an owner, you, you feel much more empowered to, make, to take those chances. Mm. I can definitely see that. And would you say that support has a slightly different relationship with these concepts than perhaps other departments? Or would you say it's kind of something that's ubiquitously true among any department within business? I think this, this comes back to, to human nature. Um, human nature is the same wherever you are. Uh, obviously, there are different cultures in the world, but human nature remains fairly consistent. When, when you are encouraged to take risks, you're going to take more risks. Whichever yes. department you're in, whether, in, whether in, uh, you're in support, marketing, people ops, it doesn't matter. So mm -hmm. I would say that the company culture is a key factor there. And that's why in, in support, you need to find the right company for you. So, I mean, I mentioned earlier, I've been at a few different companies now, and uh, the, the position I'm at at Mural is, for me, the most exciting. It's the most joyful one for coming in in the morning and doing well, coming in in, in the morning. We're all working from home, so <laughs> it's a different concept. But um, <laughs> And in different time zones too, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the idea of coming in and doing the work in this environment is much more uh, motivating. But I think that's going to be the same mm. for, for our development team. It's going to be the same for our every team within the company. Um, it, it's really, what kind of culture do you have at the company? One of the exciting things we've gone through at Mural in, uh, in the last year, and I think we were, we were talking about this uh, before we, we started the, the recording, is mm -hmm. the growth that Mural has gone through as a company and the challenges that that's presented. I mean, if, uh, if we think over the last 12 months with, uh, with the coronavirus pandemic, for some companies, uh, that has been absolutely terrible. My brother has a company that has been closed down for the last 12 months, and that has been terrible for oh, them. Sorry to hear that. Uh, but for us at Mural, it's really been a catalyst for, for growth. I mean, um, my team has gone from uh, a handful of people in, in an office in Buenos Aires to this global team providing 24-hour coverage Monday, Monday through Friday. And... The, the whole company has gone from roughly 100 people to 500 in the space of a year. So it's, it's been wow. incredible growth. And that presents its own challenges because you, you've, suddenly I've got 400 more names to remember, which, uh, which just in itself yeah. is a challenge. Uh, but also your updating processes, you're, you're assigning new roles and responsibilities. So keeping track of that, it just creates this very fluid environment, which obviously presents its own challenge, but it's also very good for support because in a fluid environment you are you have much more room to maneuver you have much more room to make decisions to uh, to, to take those chances i was talking about earlier mm. no i can really see that how the culture of innovation also allows you to integrate all of those people more actively and more seamlessly because individual people have the ability and responsibility of making the right decisions for those new people when they're coming in absolutely yeah so I think a very unique aspect of customer support is that 
one's performance is very evident to oneself, but also to others uh, in one's environment, right? And I think perhaps the closest thing that I could compare it to would be sales. So you have sales numbers, you have sales calls, and your performance is, is always a topic of conversation. But exactly as you said, I think quite often in sales, it's acceptable in some instances to, to not make a sale. Obviously, you want to, but you can't really force it. But within support, exactly as you said before, it, it is performing 99% out of 100 is not really excusable if you were rude or if you didn't really perform in certain regards. So in that sense, performance is always evident to, to you as a customer support person, but also to the people around you in your department. So I was just curious for you personally, how exactly has that made you feel? How has it uh, affected the way that you feel about the role, the industry, um, any of those things? So the way it makes me feel about the industry is there is a certain personality type or there's a certain type of person that, that's going to thrive in a customer support environment. It's not going to be for everyone. Mm. It needs to be something that you actually enjoy. It needs to be something that you're passionate about because mm. if you're like me where you came into this thinking this is going to be a short-term thing and you're just doing it as a short-term position, you're never going to do well. If you're coming into it mm -hmm. and you decide, actually, I like this. This is something that I'm passionate about. This is something that drives me then you're going to be giving your best in every single customer interaction. And any time you do screw up, you're going to take that as a learning experience and improve for the next time. So what it really means is customer support is not for everyone. I mean, I think in general, mm -hmm. customer support can have a bit of a bad rep because many people in other industries think customer support, yeah, that's, that's what the kids do. That, that's the easy job. The reality is mm -hmm. it's something where you have to have a lot of knowledge. You're constantly learning new processes. You're constantly um, yes. taking on board positive and constructive in a negative sense uh, feedback to help you improve. Yes. And you need to be able to live with that. You need to be okay with that kind of environment. It is high stress mm. for the support reps. So what, it, what I take out, out from it is it takes a certain person to do well in this job. Absolutely. And I think that feedback aspect is, is a really important piece of the story, right? And I think another thing that really sets people up uh, for success in future careers I spoke to Nick Chong, who's the global head of support and service at Zoom, enormous operation. And Nick truly believes that support is the best place to start your career. And I think that is part of the puzzle and, and why perhaps he believes that, because you can't be a successful support rep if you don't take feedback well. You're inevitably not going to know everything about the product. Even if you're very, very senior, there's still going to be gaps in your knowledge. So inevitably, you're going to have to encounter those conversations with your team lead who's overseeing you, uh, where you need to improve and you need to take that criticism on board. And I think the other thing too is that although there are definitely translatable skills that will make you good at support, support is its own entity. Uh, I think particularly when you see managers, you can't really take an operations manager and then just stick them into support and expect them to be successful. It is very much its own art slash science. Absolutely agreed. And what you were saying there about support being kind of a kickoff point, that is absolutely right. I mean, the, the kind of person that I look for to join one of my support teams is Someone that's got potential, someone that might stick around for two years, they get, uh, they get the experience, we help to develop them, not just as a person, but also in their professional skills, and then help them move mm. on to something else within the company. That for me is the ideal profile mm. of a support agent. Interesting. That, that is something I've heard elsewhere too. It's sort of support as a hiring engine in that sense. And because support interacts with so many other aspects of the business, it's a really good place to move from, from one department then to another. But is the kind of um, the half-life of an employee being around two years, is that problematic in any way as a manager? Is it something that maybe at the beginning of the, your career you wanted to fight and now you've accepted? What was that like for you? I mean, 
I've, I've had experiences with, uh, with support reps that have been in the same job for 10, 15 years, and they can be incredibly mm -hmm. successful. What I was saying earlier about it taking a certain personality type is absolutely the way it is. You need to have a passion about mm -hmm. this. And if someone comes into support and says, actually, I found my niche, great, let them do it. But some people will come into a position like this and they might be doing it, and again, maybe this sounds negative, but they might be doing it because they couldn't find something else. Well, I'm sorry, that's not mm -hmm. the best profile of a support rep. The best profile of mm -hmm. a support rep is someone that does have that potential, someone that you can build up and help them move on because those are the people mm -hmm. that, are, that are going to be performing at a high level consistently. They're the ones that, mm -hmm. that are taking your processes and giving you feedback on that because as a manager, as a director, you're not as close to the processes as a support rep. And so you need them to mm -hmm. be thinking, not just fulfilling their task, but thinking about what they're doing and saying to you, hey, this could be better if we did this. Mm, yes, yes. I think that's why it's so common that really great support managers stress being connected to the front line because the product is changing and processes are always changing. You have to update and adapt. And I think that if you don't have a culture within the department of being critical of your own processes and constantly improving things, you won't have happy agents because when things are shifting around them, the processes won't support that change and there'll they'll be friction caused by that. So Perrin, I'd like to dig into a little bit of your management style and, and your journey uh, into management. Given your background in mathematics, you obviously have a good understanding of statistics and statistics and metrics are such an important aspect of the support industry itself. Uh, maybe just a macro question just to get us started on this topic. Coming from mathematics and coming with a deep understanding of statistics, were there any uh, glaring mistakes or misconceptions regarding the way to apply numbers and data in a management context that stood out to you at first? And did those things change over time as you became a better manager? So I think the first thing that stood out to me when I, when I started down the road of management in customer support was mm -hmm. no one really understands the numbers. Um, that, that was the first mm -hmm. impression I got. Uh, you can have this fantastic uh, Excel table, which shows you the average handling time, it shows you the customer satisfaction, it shows you the, uh, the cycle time on a ticket. You can have an Excel table that shows you everything, but it's just a bunch of numbers. You need a story yeah. behind that. You need an explanation. Mm. Certainly once you go up to the executive level of being able to explain the performance in five sentences. Because once you, once you start throwing a, a, a huge complicated set of numbers at your exec team, sometimes they log out. Yes. And you can't blame them. They are only human after all. They are only human and they, they do have a million things on their plate and they need, yes. they need information that is concise, that is easily explainable and that has a, a story behind it. So I think that was the first thing that mm -hmm. I found was missing. That a lot of these performance reports in customer care environments are just a bunch of numbers. Something that was said to me by Jan Brenneke, who works at Telixo, he said that Creating this coherent picture using the metrics is very much like being a doctor. You assess symptoms, you create a diagnosis, and then you offer a solution in terms of medication or treatment. What Jan stressed at that time to me was that it's very much about building this coherent picture. And similar to what you just said, Perrin, it's about developing context and developing a contextual understanding of the causes of the numbers. Do you think that Perhaps it's a fundamental misunderstanding of statistics that causes people to see the numbers as the end result? Or do you think it's just a notion of the fact that we need to use numbers and data in order to assess a department's performance 
and that people aren't necessarily trained in how to interpret these numbers and not fall prey to uh, logical fallacies associated with interpreting statistics. So the logical fallacy of looking at statistics as the end result rather than the driver. Mm. So when you're looking at statistics, uh, you've got to bear in mind, are these leading statistics or are they resulting yes. statistics? Like, is this mm -hmm. something which, is, uh, which you're leading into or is this the result of something that you've been doing? Now, yes. one thing that I've been doing, for example, is I'm not just looking at the service level on a day-to-day -day basis. So you can have your, mm -hmm. your response service level and maybe you're at 80%, maybe you're at 90%, it doesn't really matter. What I find really important is the intraday service level. So you break that service level down mm. on an hour by hour basis and you can see where, where are your weaknesses? Where can you improve? So for example, in my situation where I took a team of uh, four people that we had in an office in Buenos Aires and we built that up now to a, mm. a global team of 25, 26 people now. Mm. The way I was doing that was looking at where are we suffering the most on service level first and higher in those slots. Mm. And then as yes. we develop, use those, those, uh, those service level statistics to kind of guide or inform those decisions. But service mm. level is not a result of hiring. Service level is something that is indicating what should our next steps be. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And <laughs> uh, this conversation will make one of our founders, Dominic, extremely happy because he's very, he also has a background in, in mathematics and he talks a lot with regard to the product about leading and lagging statistics. And it's a very similar very similar explanation to the one you just gave. It's it's separating factors into causal factors and resulting factors. And I think it's about choosing the right things to look at and when. Could you give any sort of rules of thumb or perhaps some sort of rational process to help people interpret these statistics and identify which ones are feeder statistics and which ones result from things? I think the, the first thing that you've got to do is when you're looking at these statistics, check the plausibility of them. I mean, if, you, if you've mm -hmm. suddenly seen that, uh, that you've got, I mean, going beyond uh, lagging or leading, check the plausibility first of all. I mean, if you've got something that says you've got 100% customer satisfaction, great. Is that really the case? Um, are you sure you haven't got a single yeah. customer that's complained? So just kind of check the yeah. plausibility first of all, um, because sometimes you're doing a report and you think it's turning out great but you've made a, an error in your logic at some, at some point. So I think mm -hmm. that's the first thing I always try and do. Beyond that, uh, when you're looking at your lagging statistics, so obviously the, it's in the word, a lagging statistic. It's something that you see after the event. So something mm -hmm. has happened and you only see the results afterwards. So that might be, for example, um, your... Ooh, that could be, well, if we go back to the service level, the service level is something that happens after the event. After, exactly. But it can also be leading in the sense that you're using it to inform your future decisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just think about this, the same statistic can be leading or lagging from my perspective, depending on how you're using it, depending on how you're looking at it. So just think about mm -hmm. what are you using this for? Are you using it to assess performance, to guide future decisions, and then use that to guide your interpretation? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think another aspect of this conversation is also understanding the statistics within themselves. So one such uh, conversation I had was with Raul, who is the CEO of a company called MonkeyLearn, uh, which essentially is a machine learning tool that helps uh, tag and identify conversations to assess tonality and, and content and, and things like this. And we spoke about a net promoter score. And the, the key thing that Raul highlighted is that net promoter score, as you said, Perrin, is a statistic taken after an interaction 
but also is expecting an individual to recall an experience and report on that experience from memory, which I can tell you with my background in psychology is not super optimal. Let's just put it that way. The other thing too, is that very often uh, someone will fill out a net promoter score survey if they have a particularly positive or a particularly negative interaction. If they're completely indifferent to you, it's unlikely that they'll take the extra effort in order to fill that in for you. So that's another selection bias that's part of this. So I think you need to invest a lot of effort into assessing, reassessing, and being critical of your statistics and of your metrics in order to identify the right things. Sort of to flip this conversation in a somewhat different direction, Perrin, something I know that you're passionate about is people management, right? And we mentioned uh, KPIs sort of in passing, but let's put them in, in center of view now with this question. Something you said to me is that too often people treat their employees like numbers. And I think that is similar to what we just mentioned of misinterpreting statistics or maybe using them in the wrong sense. What are some guiding principles that you use in order to ensure that KPIs are applied effectively and fairly? Because having them be effective and having them be fair are both equally important, but somewhat differentiated things. Mm. On, the, on the side of fairness, transparency. I mean, transparency is one of the, the, the key things that, that I try to focus on. On a weekly basis, we'll have the, uh, the KPIs, the, re- the report from the previous week. That's not just for me and the management team. Mm. That goes to the reps as well. They need to have that visibility on what's going on. They can check their own performance. They can check their own stats. And it can be a discussion that's, that's had between the rep and their manager. So to clarify that, you publish everyone's individual statistics as well as the team statistics, and everyone can review them both individually and on a team level. So I, I only publish the team results, but the individual results mm-hmm. are available within the, tic- the ticketing system, and anyone can go and check it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Understood. And are teammates able to check one another's statistics in, on an individual basis or only their own? They are, yes. So they're, they're able to check anyone mm. in the team. And I think that transparency mm. is important. But the other aspect that's important is how do you communicate that with the team? So, for example, I think it's the same in every customer support organization. You have different support reps that focus or specialize in different functions. Yeah. And you cannot compare those functions. So there might be someone that's only handling yeah. phone calls that does 50 cases a day. And someone that's doing technical uh, troubleshooting that does only 10 cases a day. You cannot yes. compare those two. And so that is very, yes. it's very important that you are transparent in that communication with your team saying, look, I am not expecting you to do X number a day because your role is different. Do not compare yourself mm-hmm. to them. You can check what they're doing. Absolutely. You've got that freedom. But do not compare yourself. I am not going to expect that mm-hmm. of you. So it, it's, it's also how you communicate it. So that transparency Understood. is very, very important. Mm-hmm. What's also important mm-hmm. is keep consistent. So if you've, if you've chosen a set of five KPIs, keep those five KPIs. If you change them, there has to be a damn good reason for that because your reps have their focus on tickets. They have their focus on the customer, on the processes. If you are throwing different statistics or KPIs at them every single week, you're just going to confuse them. You're moving the goalpost. Exactly. You're moving the goalpost. So keep a consistent story that you're, you're, you're explaining to your reps every single week. And if you do change it, make sure there's a, a good reason for that. Mm-hmm. Do you have an amount of time that you would advise people to stick with their current KPIs just to get a decent look and some decent data as a result? Because sample size is another really important aspect of this conversation. Would you say change them maybe every three months, make a change every one month? What would you be sufficient? Obviously, it also depends on the ticket volume and the size of the team. I know it's a little bit of a tough question. Yeah. But I suppose the key thing to take away is just not too often, right? Not on a weekly basis. Not on a weekly basis, absolutely. I mean, I personally, I've, 
as you say, it depends on, on your ticket volumes. It depends on the size of your organization. But I wouldn't recommend changing your KPIs more than once a quarter. Mm. Because you need a few weeks for, for your team to understand what you're telling them, um, to understand yes. what the trends are looking like, what's, what you're looking for, what you're explaining. And they, they will start to become more comfortable with what you're explaining after about a month. Um, so mm. at least give them a, a quarter to understand that and to be comfortable with that. And then you can think about maybe adding in one or changing one. Mm. And another thing you just mentioned, you said having around five KPIs. Yes. How many KPIs are you usually looking at? And why did you choose that specific number? So if you have too many KPIs, again, you're just throwing numbers at somebody and it's too complicated of a story. Mm. The key thing about mm -hmm. presenting your performance KPIs is have a coherent story and have something that is easy to understand that you can look at almost like a rag thing. So red, amber, green. So you have very simple uh, color coding on that to, to explain this is good, this is bad. So you have a very simple story mm -hmm. that you can tell. Five, I mean, it can be anywhere between three and, three and five, I think. Um, but the key ones are mm -hmm. also going to be your service level, your customer satisfaction, and your handling time. Uh, those are kind of the, the mm -hmm. top three. Beyond that, you can go for a couple of others. Maybe you want to go for employee satisfaction. Maybe you want to go for another one. But try, try and limit how many stats you're, you're keeping track of because every, every new KPI you add in adds to the complexity of, uh, of explaining that story. Another interesting aspect of this conversation, especially given the fact that you have a background in statistics and as do I, what was it like training managers in your experience and kind of giving them this tacit understanding of statistics that you've developed through your education? but when they haven't had this mathematical or statistical background, because some of the concepts that we're talking about are quite complex and I think are very daunting to people. But actually at its core, I think that the principles that we're, we're applying and using to interpret this information aren't really complicated. They're just not normally and easily accessible in everyday life had you not gone out to look for them. I think uh, the, uh, the important thing there is, again, it comes back to your presentation. Um, so repeating, 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 and keeping a consistent presentation style, people surprise you. You might think, yeah, they haven't studied mathematics, they're not going to get this. But actually, if you, if you can present it in the right way, anyone can understand what you're saying. I really agree with you here. Yeah. It's, it's somewhat of a shame, I think, that a lot of people are put off by mathematics and, and numbers. And speaking from a social science perspective, I think it's an issue with the way that people are educated in the realm. But I, I'm definitely in your camp. I'm a big believer in the power of the human mind. And I think that smart people can learn just about anything if they're motivated. But let's say you have a completely new manager that they themselves say have very little interest in maths. And maybe even they're one of those people that say, oh, I'm not good at maths. I'm bad at maths. I'm bad with numbers, which also I think is a, is a misconception caused by the, the rote system of education that, that drills into them that they get things wrong and they don't understand. How do you then encourage that manager to come out of their shell with your consistent presentation style and then begin applying the things that we're talking about? Support them. Um, a bit of handholding uh, really works, mm. really, really goes a long way. For me, what's important is if I'm bringing on a, a new manager, uh, make sure that they, they've understood the message. Give them every opportunity to ask questions and then, if need be, accompany them in presenting it to their team so that they can observe you a few times. As an example, when we hire a new support rep, one of the training methods that we use is a buddy system, so kind of shadowing. Mm -hmm. So a new support rep will come in, and then they will spend an hour with one of, the, one of their new colleagues, and an hour with another colleague, and an hour with another colleague. So they learn from watching the other person. 
Now that, that can go all the way up the line. So when a manager starts, they can observe how I do it and learn from that. I mean, if, yes. if they're comfortable with it from the, from the get-go, that's fine. Just let them, let them run with it. But if, they, if they're having doubts about it, if they've got any questions, then it's often easier to let them watch how I do it and then learn from that or learn how not to do it in some cases. <laughs> yeah, learning how to and learning how not to are two very unique and interesting things for sure. Absolutely. How do you begin to assess the, the preference of this individual, this fictitious inv- individual that we're talking about? Do you kind of have a, a frank conversation with them and just say, what are your preferences? What are you comfortable with? Occasionally, if you have someone that perhaps isn't as communicative, how would you go about understanding what they're good at and what they're not good at? Because you don't want to force extra training on someone because you might risk them becoming uh, disinterested. So I think one of the, one of the hardest things that people, uh, one of the hardest experiences someone can go through is admitting their own mistakes or the, admitting their own weaknesses. What I find mm-hmm. is I... I try to make myself vulnerable. I try to just say to the team, look, this is something I'm good at. This is something I'm not good at. This is where I'm strong. Mm-hmm. This is where I have my weaknesses. This is where I need your help. What can I help you with? Mm. If you make yourself vulnerable first, they are more likely to open up to you and say, actually, I need help with this. I completely agree. I completely agree. It's about leading with example in that regard. And I yeah. think that vulnerability is one of the least appreciated aspects of leadership. And we have a whole episode on that. I spoke to a lady called Chelsea Baker, who is kind of in the, the middle term of her managerial career. And she spoke to me about having vulnerability almost be a superpower, you know, but she, she had a certain moments where she, she had imposter syndrome. She had issues with feeling confident because her confidence as a leader came from her expertise of the product. And then she was expected to lead for products that she didn't know anything about. So suddenly her grounds for confidence was removed. And accepting her own vulnerability and presenting it open to her team was what opened up the door for her to develop as a human being and as a manager. So I definitely agree with you. And it's a really, really important aspect of uh, management and also something that I think is echoed by some of the best managers that I've spoken to on the show. So you're definitely a good company in that regard, Perrin. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. Just create that relaxed environment where your team feel that they're in a safe space where they are not being mm. judged the whole time. That's can mm. say, actually, I need help with this. And that's, that's, that's my job as the, as the manager of the team. So that's, that's one of my primary focuses. Uh, I'm, every Absolutely. human has their own weaknesses. I am not perfect by any means. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to say the wrong thing. And the team are aware of that. And they'll call me out on it. And that's, that's great. It's great mm. to have that, that open feedback culture. Absolutely. And I, another, I think that did become a lot more difficult when everyone started working remotely, right? And I know that you have an international team, so perhaps remote was something that was more easily accepted uh, for you, because I know you've also done it earlier on in your career as well. How exactly would you say building this open culture of communication is different or more difficult while working remotely? So one of the advantages we have at Mural is Mural is a remote-first company. So even even before the pandemic, uh, when we had offices, so we had an office in San Francisco, an office in uh, Buenos Aires, we still had a whole bunch of people working remotely. And mm. the, the ethos that we have is if one person's remote, everyone's remote. So just to kind of level the playing field. Mm. But in terms of creating that culture, you need, to, you need to do other activities. So it's not, it's not just about work. So for example, when I jump onto a Zoom call with one of my colleagues, the first thing I'm going to do is just have a chat about your day. So what are you up to? How was your weekend? Yes. So spend the first... Quite British of you as yeah, well. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> What's the weather like? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So spend the first three or five minutes just having a chat together, maybe having a laugh at each other. 
I've got a fantastic colleague who, uh, would, I'll jump onto a Zoom call and she'll say, oh no, not parent again. <laughs> it's like, no, that's so funny. And, um, <laughs> just, just allow each other, allow, allow yourself to make fun of others or others to make fun of you. Um, I think that's an mm. important aspect. Another thing that's, uh, that we've been doing uh, very consciously within, uh, within our customer support team at Mule is creating social events. So even though we're in different mm. countries, I mean, we've got part of the team in the Philippines, part in Europe, part in uh, Argentina, part in the US. And those are very, very different mm-hmm. time zones. But a few weeks back, we got together for a meal together. So it was like 8 o'clock in the morning for some of the people in the US, and it was 11 o'clock in the evening for the Philippines. But we got everybody, yeah. everybody together for a meal together. And we just mm-hmm. kind of sat down for three or four hours. Um, everyone had ordered something different, and we were kind of talking about what are we eating, why are we eating that. Mm. And then you get onto the social aspect. So we were doing like um, online card games or online drawing games. And you just create this mm. environment of being relaxed around one another. It must have been fun to start drinking in the morning too. Oh, absolutely. Dare I say I haven't done that very often. <laughs> I'm not going to complain about that. <laughs> that makes it feel even more special, even more like an event. <laughs> and can I just say, it was a weekend, so I was allowed to drink. <laughs> hey, I'm not judging. And the, honestly, the, the thing is too, is that actually making time to socialize and build social relationships is one of the least appreciated aspects of building a team. And I think that because when people are next to one another working in an office, these relationships often just develop organically. Organizations weren't actually that aware and well tailored to developing these spaces to build these social interactions outside of work. And I think that it is it is really one it is so important now that everyone is remote to actually create those spaces because they just don't naturally happen anymore. Mm. Yeah, the whole water cooler chat that you just mm. it doesn't happen anymore. So. You can try different things to recreate that, but that's all very artificial. Mm-hmm. We've tried that at Mural of just having like an open Zoom channel and anyone can join it, but it doesn't really work because you are trying to force something mm. that previously happened organically. So I think the yes. best approach is just accept that it's going to happen slower because everyone's remote, mm-hmm. but give them the space to do that. So I, I'm, I mentioned the, uh, the meal that we got together for. Uh, we've done that a couple of times before as well. And... Also, we have this kind of buddy system. So we'll have someone from the Philippines uh, that has like a friend in, in the US or in Argentina. And it's two very different time zones, mm. two di- very different cultures. But they are kind of set up in a buddy system where they're going to talk. And that helps to create some of that more organic water cooler chat. Mm. Mm. No, I like that. I think for me personally, I've made an extra effort to talk to my colleagues that work far away and that I don't work with very often. For example, I make extra time to talk to our developers and talk to them about their work, specifically the AI team and understand their gripes because I, I have an interest in AI and I, I worked for a, an NGO that was supporting AI. So it's just fun to talk to these people about these things. And I think that for me personally, I was very aware that I needed to create these relationships because otherwise I just never would have run into these people. So I think that is it is a challenge that we all face and it's one that I've asked a few people about. But I think that because remote work is still relatively new and also I think because a lot of people aren't very well accustomed to socializing on the internet. Um, it's still something that we're learning to do. I'm a longtime gamer, so a lot of my friends are on the internet and I'm perfectly comfortable talking to a black box and, and building relationships with uh, nameless, nameless, shapeless voices. But I do empathize and understand that a lot of, a lot of people aren't comfortable doing that. Hey, listen, uh, I know... Former for oh, World of Warcraft raid leader, raid leader here. So, uh... Oh, you're a raid leader. Oh, well then... So now I know why you're a ma- uh, remote manager, Perrin. That makes total sense. There you go. What was the what class did you play? Uh, Paladin. Lovely. So you're a tank. 
Well, I started obviously in vanilla, started off as a healer, uh, and then uh, mm-hmm. moved to a tank. I don't know, I, I enjoyed being able to... Because you wanted that street cred. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for anyone that doesn't know, so this is actually, this is maybe an interesting way to, to transition us into sort of remote management and things. So within multiplayer online role-playing games, MMORPGs, similar to World of Warcraft, there are things called raids where you have very large bosses with a lot of health and you have to spend about 20 minutes or an hour uh, killing this thing. Uh, and you do it with about 40 people. So from an organizational standpoint, it's actually quite a complex thing to organize because you need all these people in the same place at the same time. But also these giant monolithic bosses can kill you in one shot. And sometimes the, the, the thing that will kill you, there's only one person in the team that has one ability that's up every two minutes. And that person needs to press that one ability at that time or the entire raid dies. You need to start all over again and spend eight hours going through the entire thing just to fight that one thing again. Now, getting to the bit that is actually interesting to a lot of people that aren't interested in video games is this. Assigning roles and organizing people in a way that everyone understands what's going on and understands the expectations of their individual role is something that the raid leader, the person coordinating all these people, must plan beforehand. So going into the the question that's relevant then to to business and management, Perrin, how do you think that your experience being a, uh, a raid leader and playing World of Warcraft and being able to form relationships online has helped inform your ability to gather, A, information on preferences from your employees, but B, disseminate information in a way that they'll understand and incorporate and be able to apply on the day-to-day? So uh, it's kind of amusing going back to a gaming experience and applying that to, uh, to work, but it, it's so relevant. <laughs> but um, what I found as a raid leader is you have to really be informed about what's going on. So you have to know your team. You have to, you have to be speaking mm-hmm. to them to, to find out who's good at what, who has what strengths. I mean, in the game, you had different classes with different abilities. You had to know about each of those classes and their abilities. And it's a similar thing when you're managing a, a team. You need to know who is good at doing the tech stuff, who is good at doing the communication stuff, who is good at doing the empathy stuff, who has which specialty, and how can you use that to the, to the best of their abilities. But the other thing that, mm. uh, that was really useful was reacting under pressure or reacting under stress. Mm. At Mural, the customer support team is responsible for the communication side of an outage. So if there is a, a massive mm. outage and Mural goes down, we're the ones handling the public-facing communication. And that mm-hmm. involves gathering a lot of information because obviously you've got the DevOps team that are trying to work on a solution or maybe they need more information from customers. And so you're liaising back and forth there, translating what the customer says into techie language and then doing the same vice versa. And then updating the status mm-hmm. page, making sure that that's useful, friendly, always up to date. But it's a very high-stress situation. And so being able to react on the fly and think calmly under that pressure that's, that's a really useful, yeah. transferable skill. So for any parents out there, yes. if your kids are playing, it's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not. The thing that I usually say is I think if a child picks up chess, usually it would be encouraged. And there are many, many other strategy games that are infinitely more complex than chess, simply because there isn't a finite number of ways to, the game can play out. So I would definitely encourage people to do that. But I think the the thing that I'd also really like to highlight is that Within the context of remote work and within the context of the raid that you the raids that you were running, you don't have someone in front of you giving you body language, tone, all this extra information for you to assess their preferences. So I feel as a remote manager, you need to delve a little more into the person, into how they're feeling, because not everyone is is that communicative. And and being longtime gamers as as we are, Perrin, we're very well accustomed to communicating with people that aren't very, very 
outgoing about their feelings and emotions. Quite right. Absolutely, yes. And it's something that you're going to find on a cultural level as well. I mentioned earlier about the, uh, mm. my support team being in different locations. If, you look at, if I look at the team in the Philippines, culturally, they are much quieter than the Argentines or the Americans. They, mm-hmm. The Americans and Argentines tend to be very outspoken, very loud. And you've got to know how to deal mm-hmm. with both groups. You've got to have a different strategy on how you speak to them. For an American, for example, you just throw something at them and they're going to run with it. With uh, someone in the Philippines, mm-hmm. again, I'm generalizing, I know, but someone in the Philippines, you might need to give them a bit, a bit more encouragement. You might need to hold their hand a bit more explain it a few more times. Mm-hmm. So you just have to have different strategies for how you communicate with different people. So Perrin, we're coming somewhat to the, the end of the session and there was something that I wanted to speak to you uh, about before we left. And that was how to raise the profile of support within a company. Because I think what a lot of support departments are contending with uh, is this. The support department has certain expectations of themselves and they also have certain roles and responsibilities largely to the customer. But quite often, the expectations of the company and of management are that of cost reduction and performing, but at minimal expense and not really prioritizing the value generated within support. Uh, You've worked at a few organizations, been a leader at a few organizations. Could you give people any advice perhaps on how they can better communicate the value of support? And also secondly, how they can change the tone of the conversation surrounding support to not be focused on costs, but instead focused on a more balanced perspective of costs and benefits. Yeah, thank you for the question. I mean, it's a really important one for uh, important one for support leaders, whichever organisation they're at. I think the the most successful organisations. Uh, I've actually I was listening to some of your previous podcasts, and I heard this mentioned a few times, and it is absolutely true. The most successful organisations are the ones that are customer focused or customer centric. Yes, a customer centric organisation yes. is going to put support at the centre of what they're doing. I mean, for example, mm-hmm. if you're releasing a new product and your support, team, your support team doesn't know how to support that product, yeah, good luck to your customers, honestly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what I see my role as, uh, as a support manager um, is raising the profile of the team within the organization by speaking to them, by going to the head of product, by going to the head of marketing, by going to the different department heads talking about what's going on, talking about the experience that we're having, making sure that they have that visibility, mm-hmm. making sure that they know what, what it's like in support land. Something that's very powerful is having open days. So have a day where, mm-hmm. or, or a week, however you want to set it up, but have a system whereby anyone in the company can come in and shadow your team. So they can come in and spend a couple of hours, half a day, a day, whatever you want, but spend some time with a support team listening or watching how it works. That is such a powerful experience, especially if you get the department heads to participate in that, to come in and shadow your team and see what's working well, what's not working well, because you get so much visibility mm. from that. You get so much support afterwards. It's, it's a really mm. powerful way of positioning your team. I definitely agree. And I think the most successful companies are indeed customer centric and they, they value the, the they look at the lifetime value of a customer. They're not looking at making a sale right now or, or this month or this year. They're looking far more long-term. And I think that that is definitely a fruitful strategy. Um, the other thing that you may be interested to, to find out is Pipedrive instigated a system whereby every single employee that's onboarded into the company uh, has some time within support shadowing people, exactly as you said. Because for Pipedrive, it's something that they want. Obviously, they want people to encounter right at the beginning of their time. They want it to be a formative experience for their employees. Yeah, uh, we do the same thing. The next step for me is getting the existing employees to do the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
How's that conversation going? <laughs> uh, well, it's it's something I'm coordinating with our human resources team, um, just to make sure we're all mm. kind of lined up. I mean, one of the another important thing is support does not exist in a vacuum. So you cannot just go yeah. off and do things by yourself. You need to make sure that you're coordinating your efforts with other with other departments. So something like this, yes. I'm coordinating it with our human resources team, and we've got kind of activities already planned for Q2. So this is something that we're scheduling for Q3. Cool. Happy to hear it. I hope it goes well for everyone and that they enjoy learning about the, the pain and suffering experienced both by customers and by the support staff supporting those customers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mara said in the episode where I mentioned, oh, sorry. No, it's a good pain. It is, it is. I mean, the thing is, is that inevitably you're dealing with disgruntled customers. So it is just a fact of, of life and it is just a fact of the industry. But I think something that Mara said in, in that pipe drive uh, episode was that, you know, they need to see the pain. They need to feel the pain, which is quite visceral and quite funny, I found. <laughs> I guess like one more one more question I wanted to do before I open it up to you, Perrin, was that how does one begin to become better at standing up for oneself and also standing up for one's department? Because I definitely empathize with a lot of people in not being really, really comfortable to do that. And I think that there are many personality types that aren't really outgoing and that don't want to, uh, how should I say, cry from the top of the mountain and, and, and tell the rest of the, the company what's going on and, and take that lead and change that conversation around support. So how would you advise someone to kind of get a little bit better at that and, and maybe go against their personal preferences and natural preferences and develop the skill to stand up for yourself? I think one of the most important lessons is pick your battles. You don't want to be the, the boy that cried mm. wolf when nothing was going wrong. So pick and choose your battles yes. and choose which ones are important to rate the profile mm -hmm. of. So if there is something that's really important, it is your responsibility. It's not just your job. It's not just a personality preference. It is your responsibility to make other people aware of that. If you're not doing that, I agree. There, you need to make that step. You need to look at yourself and ask the question, why can't I do this? Maybe what you can do is mm -hmm. find someone in, in your team that has a different personality type and can assist you with that. I mean, as a support leader, it's yeah, not it's about doing everything yourself. It's about using the strengths of your team. So maybe you have one of the managers in your team or one of the uh, one of the senior support reps that do have that personality profile, and you can ask them to help you with that. So it's it's not about mm. doing everything yourself. Mm. No, I, I completely agree. And something that I learned from someone called Jocko Willink, who wrote a book called Extreme Ownership that that made him quite prominent. He said the exact same thing. He was responsible for training SEAL teams. So he was the Navy SEAL that was so good at being a Navy SEAL that he taught the Navy SEALs how to be better Navy SEALs, <laughs> which is just a crazy thing to think about. And something that he spoke about was that a senior officer, exactly as we said before, has strengths and weaknesses. And a senior officer should never feel ashamed or bad to then hand off command to someone else who has different skills if the situation dictates that. Or if the, his opinion on, on a specific topic is not uh, very informed, then he should always or she should always turn to another person in their squad and ask for their opinion instead. And I don't think that's a weakness. It's a strength. Absolutely. I mean, I've got uh, some of the support managers that report to me who have fantastic product knowledge that far surpasses mine. So if we, if we have the product team coming to ask a question about how should this work in future or what is the problem mm. with this, I'm going to say, well, speak to that manager, not me. So... Yes. I don't think I need to know everything. I don't think I need to control everything. My job is to get the best out of my team as a whole. And that might mean that I'm not mm. the best person for some of the tasks. Absolutely. And quite right. No, one, no one's perfect and no one should expect themselves to be so. And I think it's just 
added pressure on yourself, it's added pressure on your team, it's added pressure on your department if you uh, internalize that value and you're not aware of it and counteracting it uh, consciously. Um, so Perrin, we'll come some what, oh, sorry, please. No, I was just going to add to that. The added benefit of that is that you are giving your team recognition. You are building up their yes. within the company because then support isn't just a one-man show or a one-woman show. It is a whole team with different expertise. And yes. when they think of support, they're not just thinking of who is the VP of support or the director of support. They're thinking of the whole team there and they know that they mm. are an active team. So it has many other side benefits, not just in terms of the profile of the team within the company, but the person that you are lifting up in your team also feels better about what they're doing. Absolutely. And I think a general rule of thumb is if you give people responsibility and autonomy, it will generally make them perform better because it kind of it increases the weight that they put on themselves and the expectations that they have on themselves, which just has infinitesimal benefits um, in every other aspect of work that you don't always see as a manager. Absolutely. Mm. So Perrin, we've come somewhat to the end of the session. Um, at this stage, I'd like to open it up to the guests and just say, is there something that you wanted to cover on the show that we haven't touched on yet? And if not, is there something you want to leave the listeners with? Uh, I think as a closing message, I, was just, I, would, I would just want to reinforce the importance of support. I know if someone's listening to this, to this podcast, they're already interested in support for some reason. But <laughs> yeah. just remember, it is an incredibly important part of a business. No, no, no business mm. is going to survive without a good, thriving customer support team. Uh, there will be different models that work for different companies. Some companies want to reduce their costs. Some want to improve the quality. Some want to achieve something else. All of those are acceptable decisions but all of them have an importance on support. So just, re just remember, support mm. is important. It does have a key function within the, the whole company. And as support leaders, it's our job to get the best out of whatever situation we're in. I love that message. And thank you so much for leaving us off with that. Perrin, thank you so much for the time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed your company. It was such a breeze. Yeah, and thanks very much for making the time. Hey, it's my pleasure, Sebastian. Good luck. Have a wonderful day, everyone. See you later. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by Kaizo. Kaizo is a performance management platform that helps customer support teams be more productive and engaged. If you're a Zendesk user, go to kaizo.com and book a demo today.